Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Untamed Heritage, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. Delivered in an entertaining and informative fashion, as only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by DSC. Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, calling as calls made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Cold weather, Texas with a dear friend of mine who also happens to be kin folks, Mr. Herman Brune. Herman, it is supposed to be about five degrees here in another day or two here in Texas, but, uh, you know, you spent a little time up north in the north country chasing elk as a guide and, and a few other critters on muleback, on horseback. That five degrees probably doesn't sound all that cold to you. Uh, actually... I've, I've had about enough of it. I'm, I, uh, yeah, you got to figure since about 78, I was traipsing back and forth to northern Montana, and I got a full dose of it. Uh, I used to hire on up there with outfitters for the season. That would take in all the uh, fly fishing summertime trips and then right on into the early hunting season and then the general season. So I'd go to work. Usually around 1st of June, we'd get everything ready, get all the horses and mules shod, get everything ready so that around 4th of July, you could start taking hunting parties, uh, fishing parties into the mountains. Northern Montana, that's not, not really a summer trip in the early summer. There's passes up there that don't, don't get clear <laughs> until mid-July. And then they're only clear until maybe... October, end of October, something like or that. Or they yeah, can or disappear sooner, don't they? In September, they can disappear. So that's I, they shouldn't call those summer trips. Those are just mountain trips, <laughs> uh, fishing trips or something. But, you know, every once in a while, yeah, you get some warm weather, and it seems like summertime up there. But I've said, too, you know, hell, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. And, uh, yeah, I've... I'm thinking I might enjoy the beach. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, one of them, one of them nice, nice drinks and a big fish, and that that sounds that's starting to sound like fun to go someplace where I'm not wet and cold and half froze all the time and sleeping in a tent with six other guys. I'm yeah. What the hell fun is that? <laughs> you, know, you know, before we get into that, you mentioned uh, horses. Yes. 
you go back quite a way, and I, this is where I really want to start this. Okay. I, I've run into some interesting characters in my life, and I've, I've been very fortunate to be around some of the most interesting people in the world as far as I'm concerned. And I consider you part of that, my golly, <laughs> part of that. There's a very small elite group that I consider in that category. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your rodeo. And well, I, You rode Saddle Bronx. Yeah, before, sure. Before I... I get you to tell me some saddle bronc story. Why in the world would you ever want to crawl on a horse as a saddle bronc <laughs> to ride him that way? I know you, you you were working cattle. You knew all about that kind of thing. But what what prompted you to want to go to the rodeo side of things? Stories. Them old, them old men telling stories and, and kind of daring you to do things when you're a little kid. And, of course, if you watch every generation – We'll tell a story, and the next generation got to do it a little better. A little better, yeah. And, right. and because they believe us, and we always exaggerate. We're lying, see. And the more <laughs> men were lying to me about all this stuff they did. From the word go, yeah. And so, I mean, they might have done something and tried a little bit, and they sort of did it, but not like you know. And then I had to go do it one better, and uh, so it, you know, it just became second nature that. You know, when Daddy wasn't looking, uh, me and my buddies were pinning his bulls and riding them. And just because that's what we were supposed to do. Uh, and then the whole saddle bronc thing, I think once I started riding bulls, the, the problem was I was fairly proficient. I, I just, I kind of was halfway decent at it. I was, I'm not going to ever say I was a great, good bull rider, but I, I was not bad at it. And uh, I got looking at it and thinking, no, I'm, you know, I want to do this competitively now. And I never did anything, and you can call it whatever you want. I'm sure there's some kind of a mental problem with it. <laughs> but call it whatever, anything I did, I always looked at it and go, I, I at least always want to be good at it. I want to be, you know, and, and ever, ever endeavor to be the best. So... As soon as I started doing these things, riding bulls and stuff, well, automatically being uh, PRCA was automatic. That was just automatic. And then the N and then you're aiming at the NFR, and then you're aiming at that big gold buckle. And I honestly believe that. And to and in my childish mind, I thought it was easier to fill that permit to, to qualify in, in uh, PRCA as a saddle bronc rider because. And at that particular point in time, these rodeos may have 20, 30, 40 saddle bronc riders and a couple of hundred bull riders. And I thought, well, if I only got to beat 40 or 50 guys, that's easier than beating 200. All right, well, no, that's not, <laughs> it's not really the way it works. But like I said, in my childish mind, that's what I thought. So I started, I found a way to start getting on saddle broncs. And, uh, once I started trying to do it, there was no stopping. It was in, I absolutely took, uh, I took oh, a good year, year and a half of uh, head knockers getting my head stobbed in the ground pretty regular. Uh, until, I'm not too sure your until, pondo very yeah, agree with calling, what you're she's saying, calling, by God. She's, she's she, sitting there she calling said, me a, a liar. Now. <laughs> she's going, that liar. Uh, no, but I, it took me over a year, probably close to a year and a half until that little light bulb come on. And, and the guys all told me, this is the way it's going to go. If, if you ever catch on, this is the way it's going to go. And they said, that light will come on one day and all of a sudden you'll just realize this is how it works on riding a saddle run. This is how you get in time. This is what your saddle's supposed to feel like. This is how everything's supposed to work. And sure enough, it did. Uh, and after that, uh, you know, I was able to kind of perfect it to a point that uh, I went to the Texas Circuit Finals a number of times. I never made it to the NFR. Uh, I was just good enough at it to starve <laughs> and uh, and not smart enough at it to, to really enter the rodeos I needed to enter to make a living at it. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I, I boy, uh, you talk about living wild and fast and free for a while. Uh, that's it, boy. Coast to coast, hard as you can go, and just you know, just 
your hair on fire going as fast as you can, just having a blast and and just one purpose in mind to get on that next one and just to to be you know be the best and to ride the best and uh uh it was a hoot it, it was just a hoot so you just went from I, one rodeo to the next to the a, next to the next a, to the in next the pros in the pros you got everything two weeks in advance and you'll you've got a system called pro comp that uh that does your entering and now the people are going to listen to this and laugh at me because I, I haven't had a PRCA card since since 2000. They're going to, you know, figure out, filled my permit in 81, had a PRCA card till 2000, uh, healed up and went to a few regional little amateur deals until about 2006. And then I said, that's enough. But in ProCom, you're on that phone every day and you're going to call in, you're going to enter, you're going to give them your preference for however many rodeos you're entering that day and then every and they're going to tell you when to call back to get your performance tell you what performance you're out and then you have to call back a third time to find out what stock you've drawn and so there's three calls that's the way it was when i was doing it there was three calls for each rodeo and if you're going to trying to make one almost every day which you can do in the summertime yeah uh you're on that phone every day and you're booking these rodeos two weeks in advance so that you've got a you you've got a system going here and you've got a schedule going and you're on that phone it turns into uh it turns into a little bit of a business because then when you start finding out okay well i draw on such and such stock at uh uh cherokee iowa and you know that that's the bottom end of the herd well maybe you entered you wound up in two different places on that day and let's see what we drew somewhere else. And you wind up turning one out to go get on another one. Deal is you still got to pay your entry fees for that exactly. first one. Yeah. Plus if that was on a preferred performance, uh, that was your preference. You got to turn uh, pay a fine for that. So you got to know how much you're going to win at this other one. You have to be competing at such a level. You know, you're going to win money. And that's where some of these guys come off as being cocky. And it is, but it's also that confidence that, you know, I'm going to win. And uh, uh, I, I know I was, I, was, I was at a rodeo in Kingsville one time, and uh, uh, there was a fellow there that was, I guess, had something to do. Uh, Rudy Vela had to stock. And I think he had some of Mac Altizer's horses. And I had a good one. And sure enough, a bucker. And I got there early, and I was getting all my stuff ready, and a gentleman was talking to me, and I told him which horse I had. And he kind of looked at me and goes, well, boy, you got to really do something. That horse, you know, throws off lost people. And I said, well, he don't throw off nobody today. And he's, he's going, what do you mean? How you, you think you can ride him? I said, I know I can ride him. I know I can ride him. I know I can win first, and I'll, I'll tell you why. And I said, watch. I said, I'm, I, honest to God, don't want to be cocky. Honest to God, I'm going to tell you what that horse is going to do jump for jump, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do jump for jump. And at the end of, end of the deal, I'm going to be 78, 79 points. I'm going to win this thing. I said, that's the plan. And the man thought I was... I was just, you know, ungodly cocky, you know, but that's exactly what happened. And that's kind of the way your mindset kind of needs to be. If you're going to gamble that way and go to all those rodeos and double enter and do all that stuff like that, you got to kind of have that mindset that I'm going to go out here and win and know you can do it. Did you have intel on this horse? Oh from, yeah, from yeah, 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 and, yeah. And yeah. you watched him. You watched right. him buck before, so yes, you, you knew pretty much what he was going to do when he left that shoot. Sure. Yeah, that particular instance that I'm talking about right now is yes. I knew that horse jump for jump. I'd been on him before. Oh, okay. I'd been on him before. I'd watched him how many times, uh, and every time he did, he had the same trip every time, and and he was a good one. You know, so I, I, no, I knew that horse. And it gets to a point where you kind of know a bunch of them. Right. 
And but this one, you do a lot of rodeo, so you're riding a, a lot of different stuff. You know a bunch of... And you're watching everything else going on while you're there and in that yes. event, for sure. And if... If there and there's all kind, you got all kinds of support systems there, because uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, every wife and girlfriend I ever had during my rodeo years <laughs> knew how to knew how to uh, uh, critique horses, right? Because they listened to so much of that stuff. Because we lived, <laughs> we choice, yeah, <laughs> we lived and breathed saddle bronc riding, and every one of them gals. Uh, uh, knew how to critique the horses uh to the extent that sometimes it wasn't it wasn't such a great thing i was in liberty texas one night out in the slack and there wasn't really any spectators there except the wives and the girlfriends right. and the contestants out in the slack and uh i got on a horse that just took me to the in before the whistle blew we were at the other end of the pen and this is like blowing up a balloon and turning it loose it was not a good bucking horse and uh, I got off on the pickup man down at the other end of the pen, and I come walking back, and I was shaking my head because, you know, obviously I wasn't going to, I hadn't done it. You know, that horse wasn't anywhere near competitive. And uh little old gal I was married to at the time for everyone in the arena's benefit yelled at me and said, it might have bucked if you'd ever stuck a spur in him. <laughs> and I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you, babe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, you got to love it. You know, it's just, it is what it is. But, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, there's one of the things we talk about rodeo. There's, there's one of the things that I would also like to address, and I address it in uh, the acknowledgments in the first paragraph. In in my book that's coming out, this is a new one. We're going to come back to because uh, you got some others out as well. But the, the perceptions dictate reality, and once upon a time, a lot of folks viewed rodeo cowboys as bums. Then the Mesquite Rodeo was televised. After that, the NFR, PBR, BRO, and a long list of horsey type events were televised on ESPN and RFD TV. Uh, exhibiting the fickle shallowness of groupthink, suddenly being a rodeo guy became acceptable and groovy. <laughs> and that is exactly correct. You, you know what? You're exactly right. I, a, a, a dear friend I don't get to see very often anymore, but Phil Lyon. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, Phil and I have hunted together, and I've known Phil for a long, long time. You also mentioned the Mesquite Rodeo because uh, Donnie Gay and his, of course, his dad, I guess, produced it more than anything else. Donnie, yeah. maybe his brother. But one of the things I remember from years ago when that first came on, I was sitting there watching. I've, I've never been involved in rodeo other than loving it and loving to watch it. And uh, I was sitting there watching this rodeo, the Mesquite Rodeo, and all of a sudden here comes Harvin Brew, <laughs> and I remember one of Donnie's comments about oh. time, and he said, he said, here comes, I can't remember the exact words, but he said, here's a man that's got the best mustache in all the rodeo <laughs> coming out of, you know, whatever, riding so-and-so, and I remember, I can't remember the Bronx, but I remember you rode the darn thing. It, it, you know, Donnie's favorite deal, I got sifted through that pipe fence there one night, and that was one of his <laughs> favorite deals. Now, I don't know, maybe he wouldn't have laughed so hard if I... If I hadn't got up, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but you got you up. Know, yeah, I got up. You know, I took I, quite I, a bit of effort. It did. I was, I was, you know, you get up and stand there and count what I was broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, wave this way. Yeah. You know, and you're going, okay. I, uh, you know, I kind of need a little help here, guys. <laughs> but no, Donnie, uh, uh, he was still going when I was going. Yeah. And then he, uh, he had his own little production company there for a while, and Neil took care of, you know, his dad took care right, of the ski. Neil, that's and, right. and, yes, and then Donnie had a bunch of the outside stuff. And uh, I always, I, I enjoyed Donnie. I, you know, uh, Donnie's is his own character. And some people like it and some people don't. And I've always enjoyed Donnie. And, uh, you know, he, he's got his own character, he's got his own sense of humor. And uh, I've always enjoyed I've always enjoyed listening to Donnie on 
television or at the rodeos or, you know, whenever we were talking to each other, uh, you know, so, uh, he's, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's one, he's kind of Donnie and Hawkeye and Hooter and all that bunch there. Uh, that's all kind of, uh, a generation, just like if I was a freshman in high school, they were seniors, you know, that's kind of the way that went. Uh, if I was a freshman or sophomore, they were seniors. And uh, Bud Monroe and, and uh, uh, some of those guys that, you know, were still there uh, when I was going. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. You mentioned Hawkeye. Did you, did you, yeah. you ever aspire to come off the horse no. like he did? Uh-uh. No. <laughs> Landing I, on his No. I, that was, I think that was actually attributed to uh, Hooter, uh, Bob Brown. Uh-huh. And then Hawkeye picked it up from him. And, uh, yeah, no, I always was a little more concerned about my knees, and which I probably never had a problem. I, I only did it one time kind of by accident. And, it uh, looked good when it happened. Yeah, it looked good when it happened, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I if I I was well, somewhere. What we're north. talking about when he instead of let the pickup man come by and take him off or help help him off, he would just totally dismount and yeah. end up It'd most of the time standing up on both feet. When yeah, that's ground. yeah, that's the point. Is you're supposed to you're supposed to just jump off the horse and land on your feet and walk off like that's an everyday occurrence, right? And uh, you know, tip your hat and, and, <laughs> and the time I did it, I actually. Uh, I stepped off and then pitched the pitched the buck rein to the pickup man and walked off, and I and I you know realized what I had done and I went oh be damn you know and just did it kind of second nature without right. thinking it just worked so easy just that one time but for the, most of the time most of the time I did not I didn't check out I I always waited for that pickup man that's what they're there for and uh, and then knowing how to you know, knowing how to get off on the pickup man correctly is also a, a good thing. It's just something you ought to know how to do, hand them the rein and be able to go around behind them and get off. Exactly. And one of the things they used to have, and I don't know if all the guys, if it was a conscious thing or not, or if it was just a, the fad at the time, that so many of those saddles had a uh, what they call that Cheyenne roll around the back of right. the cantle. On the back of the seat, back of the kennel, and uh, you could you could hand that rein and reach around yeah, behind grab, it and grab that shine and yeah, roll on yeah, the back of the see seat that, exactly, and and slide across the back side of that and get off on the other side. And uh, I tried to utilize that as much as I could. I didn't want to grab those guys, you know, unless you know, unless you're just way out of shape and you're. You know, in a, in a, in a wreck you, you going there. It, my God. But if but if you're getting off clean and easy and and can just kind of pick your spot, uh, that was a that was a good way to do it. Use that Cheyenne roller right. go around the back yeah, side. Yeah, I can of see it. that. Yeah, you know, because it kind of gave you a handle down there to, to something to get a hold of uh, without having to grab pickup man. Of course, if pickup man is giving you any grief. Uh, they were wearing one of them Panama straws. You can just crunch that booger going across. <laughs> well, you know, that happens to us in a while. I'm sorry, buddy. Man, I'm I didn't so mean sorry. to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just go go crunch your old Panama when you're getting across here. But that don't, you know, it's just when you got to, it's got to kind of be a buddy. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, See yeah. that too. But, uh, no, I, I enjoy, and after a while, it, very short order, once I started riding the Saddle Bronx, the deal with the bull riding was I could just reset my feet, but I wasn't one of these guys that could just gap open and start knocking the air out of one. And after I got to where I was riding Saddle Bronx more correctly, suddenly when I got on bulls, I couldn't hold my feet still. Whereas before I just clamped on and could reset my feet, but not really move them. All of a sudden, a few, you know, year or two down the road, I couldn't keep my feet still. That my feet were just ginning the whole time. Right. And sometimes they wasn't in the right spot. And I, I just decided. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm doing 
decent at this bronc riding. I'm I'm just gonna let them bulls go, and so I just concentrated on saddle bronc riding for the next twenty years, <laughs> and uh, you know, and just enjoyed it. And then you know, to the extent I enjoyed it so much that even when I decided I I I wasn't wasn't gonna uh, get my PRCA card anymore, and I needed to go home and heal up. And after a while, I uh, I decided I said, you know, I just I'm just going to go to some of these little old regional uh, local rodeos and just just for the love of just riding Bronx. And I figured out again in a couple of years that I was just too competitive because I would go to like sixty. I would still go to like sixty rodeos in a year. And uh, mm. The last year I went was in 2006. I went to their little final sitting second in their association when I went in to the finals. Wound up third for the year. I didn't have that great finals, but uh, only placed once in their finals. Uh, but you know, I was just too competitive. And, uh, you know, behind the shoots is all, all your buddies, all your friends. Everybody's messing with each other. Everybody's. You know, it's all good stuff. And now I'd reached the point where everybody called me Mr. Brune. And I was riding, competing against my buddy's kids. And I went, okay, this is, I I'm, I don't, I, I finally reached the point. I said, you know, okay, well, that's enough. I was 49. And I said, that's enough. I, I, I don't believe I'm So that, be that's about that. time when you quit riding Saddlebrook. Yeah. For competition, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, for competition. I said, yeah. that's, that's just enough for that. I, I don't need to do this. Uh, I, I've done it enough, proved everything I need to prove, and happy with myself, and I can go on and say, I, you know, I've done it. I had one, one, of, the, one of the children asked me, uh, we were all getting ready to get on our Bronx, and he asked me when I got on my first one, and I said, 77. And he just looked at me and goes, wow, I wasn't even born then. I wasn't even born then. Yeah, I wasn't even born then. You know what? In, in the years I've been around this game and the outdoor game thing, I, I kind of appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> Somebody said, when did you sell your first magazine article? And, and my first national article was in 1970. Yeah. And, you know, now you look at that, look, good gosh, that's 51 years ago, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's, it's still fun. And I'm, I'm fortunate that uh, I can still write. I can still do a lot of things. And I don't have to get on a bronc to, uh, yeah. to to prove that I can do it, it kind of thing. Well, and then, you know, when people know that that's kind of your proclivity. And, you know, I, I when I was in high school, I was, I was getting on horses at the racetrack and trying to straighten out horses at the racetrack and, you know, just constantly getting on fix them up horses. And uh, and then through all the years of guiding, it, I think the, in 2018 was the last year I guided in the wilderness, and it was the first time I ever told an outfitter, I'm not riding something that, yeah. I, that I have to ear down to get on. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I just, I just, I know a lot of folks. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, I've had to hear down a bunch of them, but it's, yeah. I, I, in 2018 was the first time I ever. I told the outfitter, I said, I'm, I'm just, I need, I need a horse or two, and you know, a couple of horses that I can just catch and get That's on right. and go on. I said, don't, don't get because up until that point in time, those are the ones I had. Yeah. Those, those are the ones. And probably I, the ones you really enjoyed dealing well, I with. I kind of did. You know, <laughs> it was kind of. It was kind of. the younger years. It was well, and even as I got older, it was kind of a pride thing. You know, that, you know, give me the ones uh -huh. that nobody else wanted. Uh -huh. Had some kind of little, old, you know, and not necessarily necessarily always bucking horses, but no, just no, just no, no, no. you know ticks, just <laughs> some kind of an odd tick to figure out what to do to get along with this horse, and. Uh, you know, otherwise he's going to tear the world up and flip over backwards or, you know, something dumb. And uh, so I, I always, those are the ones I had. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I, I got a kick out of it. And uh, I did the last year I was there. There was one of those old horses that was in the string. And there was a kid that was supposed to be riding it. An old pony was 20-something years old. 
And back in the day, he used to crow hop. And uh, I knew I knew one or two, or I knew one guy in particular that really, just checked out on him one time when he went to crow hopping. And I laughed at that feller. And then this kid had him, you know, almost 20 years later and uh, was coming across coming across the, the East Fork of the Wind River. And I didn't see it. I kind of heard it, but I didn't see it. And the kid was playing with his phone. And that phone made some kind of uh, alien noise that this old Mustang wasn't used to. And that 20-something-year-old horse dumped that kid right in the creek. Right in the creek. I loved it. I only, I, yeah, I'm going to feed that horse extra. And then I'm going to chew that kid's ass out for bringing a phone to the mountains. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, I said, oh, yeah, I love you. Tell me about the first time that you went to mountains to, to guide. Uh, I, I actually... Can you remember kinda, that far yeah, back? Well, yeah. I mean, it's sort of kind of a mixed-up deal because... The uh, I, I went to the mountains the first time with the neighbor boy up in Montana, and we would just go just so he could kill elk because right. I wasn't near smart enough. <laughs> and uh, there was a whole about a whole lot of that leave me beside a bush while he went and killed elk. And uh, uh, it took me a while to learn how to hunt up there, and then. He had his best friend who was kind of a part-time outfitter. And we started hanging out at that guy's camp. And uh, uh, we started hanging out at that guy's camp. And then little by little, I got started getting used as a guide. And it wasn't, a, and that was all through the 80s. And uh, I went up there first time in 78, all through the 80s. It was us just kind of goofing around and part-time and just messing around and and then in 90, I went up and I helped him with a few hunts. And then we hunted on our own and then packed the camp out. And it was during that time that I talked to him. And he had just bought another uh, concession in the middle fork of the Flathead. And he that gave him a full uh, season with summer trips in the Sun River Uh early season in middle fork of the flathead and then a, a late season in deep creek uh which is actually on the east front which we were hunting the south fork of deep creek which is now uh david letterman owns that land right up to it coming up from the bottom he bought out that salmon's ranch and that Deep Creek runs down in down into that, and so we're up in the mountains up above that ranch, and you had to come in around the backside to get in there. But it, back in the day, that was some jam up knockout mule deer hunting back here. And there was back back in those days, there was a lot of mule deer in there. But then we also uh, we'd hunt the general season either in there or. This outfitter I started with uh, had the propensity to lease other outfitters' camps if they weren't getting used. One year we leased uh, Jack Atchison's camp oh, in, really? in the Missouri Breaks yeah. in north central Montana, yeah. uh, just below the Missouri River. Uh, we leased that place one year. Uh, one year we leased another outfitter's camp up on the Two Medicine, right below Glacier Park. And uh, I'm just thankful I got to do all that stuff and see all that country and the the, uh, the experiences I had up there. Because like the, uh, the Two Medicine country is the epitome of wilderness elk hunting. The stories now. Now you're gonna remember this. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit a nerve. You're gonna remember it. the 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 pictures in our minds when we were growing up reading Jack O'Connor wilderness elk hunting stories. Those giant giant elk with the massive horns, with the black ebony horns, with the with the ivory tips, 
and this big magnanimous mane they you know just hanging way down below their neck and these you know elk that are bulls that are pushing a thousand pounds you know uh just giant wilderness black timber elk that's what i had in my mind when i was growing up that this is what a right. real wilderness right. hunt looks and that's the two medicine and you can go you can go clobber 400 class elk in so many places but if they're overpopulated or if they're in country that doesn't see a lot of snow that two medicine is deep snow country and those elk have beards manes hanging under their neck way down there and when you go into a northern montana taxidermy shop and you'll see two or three elk heads on the wall you'll and, know and where then, they're from right and then all yeah. of a sudden you see one from the two medicine yeah and you're like well there it is there's the dream there's yeah. there's there's the one that you know came from the dark timber you know this is this is the giant you know and that's the way the two medicine was when i hunted there the first time now the second time i was there they said there'd been a winter kill and you just played hell finding an elk uh but the first time i was there was and again it was that experience the first time i was there i guided my first hunter to a big bull and it was one of those uh, oh, two medicine yeah. bulls. My gracious. And it, and it was a lady from uh, uh, oh, say, uh, College, Pennsylvania. Uh, State College? State College, Pennsylvania. It was a lady, Marty Nizer from State College, Pennsylvania. And uh, she, uh, that lady's a hunting bugger. And shot that bull with a 270, one shot. And like you're supposed to do, just like you're supposed to do it. And and we had tracked that bull, and she saw I put her in front of me. We were going so slow, creeping because we knew he was there. Because we blew him out of his bed, and usually that's the end of the game. But I knew he didn't smell us, and I I think about it for a minute. I'm going, nah, you know, he heard something and left. He didn't see us. He didn't smell us. And we're going down into this basin, this bowl, and he's going to parallel us, and he's going to be right over there. And I, and that's and I'm we're going to go this way. He's going to go around this way. We're going to parallel him somewhere along here. We're going to get a spot on him, but we got to go real slow, and I got to put her in front, and that's what we were doing. And all of a sudden, she just locked up and stood there and looked. And I could see a patch of buckskin through the trees. And I, I leaned up, and this almost, you know, you whispering. And it's almost like telepathy, almost telepathic, because I said, you, you know, right. do you got shot? And I said, you know, do you got shot? And she nodded. And she raised her rifle and stood there and then let it down and then just kind of muttered back to me, can't do this freehand. And I just that quick stepped beside her and bent over. And she laid that rifle across my shoulders and leaned on my back like that and shot him. And uh, I held, you know, boy, I was just trying to be like a stump. And uh, I held still for, you know, a second or two after she shot. And then I looked and I saw when the bull ran down below us was the first time I'd really got a look at his, you know, rack at his horns. And I, I, I said, oh, my goodness. I said, did you hit that bull? And she just looked at me like I was stupid. Like, and, yeah, and, you know, I got and, shot at and, him. And, and, yeah, and she's like, that's a dead bull. I shot him dead. No, okay, well, let's go see. And we slid down there, and we probably went 50 yards till we picked up blood. But as soon as we picked up blood, we stopped, and we ate a sandwich and ate some cookies and sit there and visited for a while and killed some time, and then real slow started poking along. And about another 75 yards, he was laying there, you know. And he would turn and watch his back trail, and every time he'd turn and watch his black back trail, you could see where he's blowing, Absolutely, blowing, yeah. blowing uh, yeah. blood out his nose. And the last time he stopped and looked at his back trail, he tipped over. 
And so, you know, so we got him. That was the first big bull, but it was one of them two medicine bulls. And, uh, oh, it was, it was, it was just, and we were way the hell back there. Uh, because you're right beside the, the, uh, Blackfeet reservation. And we were headed towards the reservation. Uh, when, when, when you didn't get to it, right? Yeah, well, we wasn't going to get <laughs> no, to it. But, well, I know. <laughs> it, yeah, but it, it was it was headed that direction. And uh, you're you're just south of Glacier Park, and you're just right there beside the Blackfeet. And, uh, I, you know, I always looked at that, and I said, good Lord, those people down in Arizona got it right and figured out how to raise elk. How, you know, they ought to be able to do that here, too. And when you got that Blackfeet Reservation here, you got Glacier Park right there, you got the whole big Bob Marshall, Hungry Horse, Scapegoat Wilderness Complex. If these people really were serious about having an elk population, they, they could, man, they could raise some elk here. You know, because they had the genetics for it, you know. It, they, they, and such, and you couldn't, wild and beautiful country, it's just, you know, and if you ever read A.B. Guthrie, A.B. Guthrie was from Shoto, Montana. And if you read the books, The Way West, uh, the series, a six-book series, it starts out with the big sky, and then it's a continuation, and it's a timeline continuation. It starts off with the mountain men in the big sky. It continues with the mountain men in The Way West, and then just on, uh, it's a timeline on after that. On, right on up into the ranching, on up into modern times. And uh, A.B. Guthrie lived in Shoto, and that's where we headquartered out of was Shoto. And when when you uh, read those books, uh, you know, the Two Medicine and Ear Mountain out west of Shoto and all that country is described in those books. And it was fun for me when I got there to, uh, to all of a sudden realize this is where Guthrie lived and then all of a sudden go back and read those books again and look around and see this stuff. And I'm going, oh, I'm right here. you know. And in fact, uh, the second outfitter that I worked for had a horse pasture leased from his daughter. So I got to meet his daughter and... Uh, it was, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, it was all good experiences. Every, everything up there, uh, the people, you know, all the people I met. And that was, that was part of the thing about, uh, that whole, that whole deal packing up and going into the Bob, uh, because we, we'd go in, good Lord, we go way the hell back in there. And, uh, that was before cell phones. And I don't know, I bet you they still don't work in most of those places. But when you get up on top, you know, most people can get a signal. But I'm I'm a severe advocate for leaving that phone in the truck and going to the mountains for eight or ten days and do without. You know, people just don't think they can do that, but they can. And they'd be a better person for doing it. And, uh, Herman, I agree totally. When I go on a hunt, unless that I know there's a family problem I have to check in on, yeah. or if it's anything else, the, the last thing I do, or the first thing I do a lot of times when I get into a camp where I'm going into camp like that, is that cell phone is turned off. And I just, I don't even want to know what day it, day it is. I don't want to know anything. The most important thing is, as far as I'm concerned, the cell phone's turned off. If I'm with somebody, you tell me what day we're, you know, the night before we're leaving, you tell me we we'll pack up. You know, that to me is, is part of that wilderness experience or that hunting experience. If you're supposed to be giving something like you're there for a reason, you're there to take care of, you, you don't need to be distracted with no. something else. No. You need to give 110%. <laughs> attention to what you're doing exactly. right here and now and the enjoyment of that time frame and that time period that you're there and you know one of the okay and i i, I think in my first book i think i wrote a story about it that you could see on an eight-day trip you could you could kind of see the timeline of you know of course there were no cell phones back then but when these guys got there and they were talking about their business 
and talking about what needed to happen while they were gone, and they hoped their secretary took care of this, and they were expecting something in the mail, and na 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 na. They're talking about all this, and then they, you take them in the mountains, and the trailhead is fifty miles from town, and then you're taking them another eighteen miles into the mountains. By the time they get there, you know they know they're they're way off somewhere. So they're not they're not around people no more, and. uh they get in there, well, then the, the next thing, they, their very short order, their priority becomes making a nest and, you know, getting in their tent and organizing themselves. And within a day or two, all of a sudden, they realize they're dependent upon this guide to keep them warm, keep them safe, uh, try to show them an elk, keep them fed, you know, help them with the horse. You know, and they're dependent, and their priorities change as to what is the most significant things going on right here, right now. I got to pay attention. And as the week goes on, the conversations change. Now, you play, uh, I, I don't know how many times I've considered myself to hang out a, a sign for psychotherapy because, uh, <laughs> you know, I listen to so many stories. And so many, you know, so many stories talking about, you know, I did that wrong. I wished I had to do it over again. And if you listen long enough, there's lots of times you can tell them, you got, you got time. time to, you to got time. Yes. Yeah. You, you, you got to go you, back and do that. Yeah, yeah. You got time to get it right. You ain't, you ain't through. And uh, go fix it. And at the end of the trip, uh, they're not talking about as much about their business as they're ready for their family. And, you know, I feel like I've, I've done something more uh, better than just clanking them a, a, a mule deer or an elk. You know, hopefully they did that too. You know, we certainly tried to do that. But if they're going home with a general good feeling about it, and then maybe they're going to bring their family next year and go fishing with us, you know, and bring their family on a trip. Well, that's that's really uh, that's you know icing on top. That's good stuff. That's when you know you you're doing good stuff. Herman, you you've had so many experiences. You you you've done so many things. We just touched on a small portion of oh, this time. Oh, yeah, because yeah. somewhere down the way we're going to go to the point where you got on the plane with my wife and I, and we headed to Austria. Oh well, yeah, too. we'll get into that some other time. Right. And I want to save a lot of this. I'm, we're going to come back, and I want to do this with you. Oh, on a fairly regular basis here. You just got so many different stories that can be told, and you do it in such a most interesting manner. But uh, before we, and you've got a radio show, and you do this, and you're very much involved as far as the Texas Outdoor Writers Association thing is concerned. Where I want to end this this time and leave the door wide open on a lot of things, tell me a little bit about your books and how oh. somebody can get in touch with them. Because if you've listened to Herman tell the stories here, if you read his writings, you will go, oh, my God, it's even so much better, you know, and listen to him in person. But, uh, well, maybe not. Because well, it all depends upon the circumstances, which campfire you're around and which kind of uh, safe water we might have. But tell me about sure. the books that you have available now. And I know that you've got another one that you're yeah. about to complete again. I've got. Uh, I've got two books out. I've got the first book is uh, Tales from the Lost Rider of Yopon Creek. All right, so this creek down here below the house is Yopon Creek. And uh, the Lost Rider is, ah, you know, you try to write something that everybody can kind of relate to. And as you tell these stories, uh, you, uh, yeah, there he goes. That's that damn dog getting on the phone again. Uh, as you, as you tell these stories, uh, and I, I relate them as being the lost rider. I, I try to, to tell the stories in a way that everybody can see the lost rider in all of us that, you know, there's times when we don't know what to do. There's times that we, we just, you know, the world kind of leaves us behind. There's times that we just feel lost, like we don't know what to do next. 
but there's you know there's always there's always a lesson there's always a, a way to muddle through all this stuff so this is tales from the lost rider of yopon creek and uh you know just you know from down here in in colorado county and uh picked up and took off and went to montana and rodeoed all over the country and milked cows had a dairy you know got a bar you know just did all these things and it's just the stories of life, you know, and, and hopefully a person can get a chuckle out of it, maybe learn a lesson from it, uh, answer some questions in people's minds, maybe. Uh, you know, hopefully there's some good that comes out of these books. Uh, and the second book is Tales from the Lost Rider, Tales from the Lost Rider, uh, Christmas Tales from the Lost Rider, and it's 12 years of Christmas stories. And it's, uh, I, I, always say that everything I write is factual and uh, anything I say is exactly the way it happened and it's up to you to prove otherwise. Uh, so Christmas Tales from the Lost Riders, 12 years of Christmas and then in between each one is four recipes and they're outfitters recipes. I had uh, two outfitters from Montana, one from Wyoming and one from Mexico send me recipes. My daughter uh, categorized the recipes, edited them for consistency, and so we put those in the second one. These books are available on Amazon. Uh, the third book that is about to come out is The Lost Rider and Friends, and I think uh, it's, again, it's a book about growing up down here in the Post Oak Savannah, uh, guiding in Montana, Wyoming, Mexico, and uh, Texas, and then a lot of stories about a lot of the uh, the echoes that I hear from the old guy, from the old people who are past, and talking about the things that we learned and the ways that we do things, and uh, it's kind of a passing here. I, I know I say in my uh, acknowledgments and dedication in this third book that hopefully I'll leave some ideas behind so the coming generations at least ways understand why we did things the way we did them, you know. Uh, so those are the Lost Rider books. They're short stories. They're easy to read. Uh, you know, I think they're easy to read. Sometimes they make you laugh. I'm told sometimes they make you cry. And, uh, you know, but they're always meant to teach a lesson and maybe give you a chuckle. Absolutely fantastic reading, I can tell you. I, I love them, by golly. And again, they're available on Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, so sir. just uh, what they do there, just go type in Herman Brune books, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Herman Brune. Yeah, that's it. I mean, just if you type in Arthur and you say Herman W. Brune, these books will come up. Herman W. Brune. Yes, sir. Guy. Yes, sir. And they'll, they'll all three be there shortly. I think if right now today, if you did it, I think you just get the first one. But in short order here in the next month, I'll have all three of them there. Well, we'll come back and revisit all that. I, all Herman, right. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate spending time with you today. I'm looking forward to the next time. Maybe it will uh, find a, a, a day where, the day this is being recorded, we're going into this Siberian cold front that's right. coming through, and it's supposed to be cold. And I kind of suspect next time we do this, we may find yeah. we may go down to the Colorado River, sit on the river bank a little bit yeah. and tell a story. That'd be easy. That'd be an easy thing to do here, yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me this All morning right. and everybody else in Herman. We'll be back with you for too very long and really appreciate y'all listening to what is now known as DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissett. We'll see y'all next week. DSC's Untamed Heritage is also brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products, the scent gods. Kennetrek boots for the trail less traveled. Wildlife systems, serving hunters and landowners since 1987. Boyt, the finest in hunting gear. And Pyramid Air for all things air guns.